Well, good morning, everyone at Grace. It's good to see you guys here as we are uh, continuing in a series that we started now several weeks ago that we've been calling uh, a 90-day trek through the Bible. And if you're just jumping in for this series, or maybe if you missed some of it, maybe you've been away and you just kind of came back, uh, basically what we've been doing, as you can, you can just tell from the title, is we've been spending uh, this time, uh, uh, just kind of a time period of about 90 days, and we have actually been overviewing the entire Bible. And uh, quite frankly, the reason we've been doing this, we've been saying, is because we said, man, the Bible is so foundational, the Bible is so important, and yet it's one of those things in our culture that's met with such an immense amount of confusion and controversy and even skepticism. And so we said, you know, it would, it would really just do us well to take the whole summer and take a 90-day period of time and just sort of overview the whole Bible. Let's talk about it. What is the Bible? How are we to understand it? What's it all about? And really, that's what we've been doing. We're kind of unpacking the whole thing. Like Steve mentioned, one of the things we've also been doing um, this summers. We've been challenging everyone who's part of Grace Church, all the way from the children up to the adults and everywhere in between, to uh, engage in uh, reading the Bible themselves. So we've offered a number of reading plans, which by the way, Steve mentioned, you can jump into that today if you haven't started one. And those badges are basically just a small little reward that we want to give you if, you if you get a chance to accomplish that. But we've been doing that because we've been saying, man, the Bible's so important and we really want to kind of overview that together. And again, if you're just joining us, what we've been really saying is we've been saying, if you want to understand the Bible, in a nutshell, what the Bible is, when you're holding your Bible, what you're really holding, probably the best way to, to, to kind of summarize it, is God's rescue plan. That the Bible is really God's rescue plan. And if you start there, it really gives you a good foundation to understand what the Bible is. That is to say this, that the Bible is not a history book. Now, it includes history, right? And the history that's in it is factual. Um, but it is not primarily aimed to be a history book. It's not a science book. Now, the Bible, of course, isn't contradictory to science. It includes things that involve science. But again, that's not its aim. Um, the Bible includes inspirational and motivational stories. But the Bible is not primarily an inspirational book. It's not intended to be like chicken soup for the soul or something like that, right? The Bible is intended to be God's rescue plan. And from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, what you're looking at when you're reading the Bible is you're looking at not only God's desire to save humanity, but also the plan in which God activates to accomplish that salvation, to accomplish that rescuing. And so we said, man, the Bible is a very thorough explanation of how God has saved us. And so we've really said this. We said the Bible explains to us what we're saved from. The Bible explains to us what we're saved by. And the Bible explains to us what we're saved to. So, so kind of the full picture, the complete salvation, total rescue. And the Bible explains what we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved to. And so because of that, what we've been doing in this series is each week we've been talking under those headings. And so, for example, the first month of this series, we talked all about what we're saved from. And the Bible explains that we're saved from some stuff. And we talked about how the Bible says we're saved from sin, and we kind of explained that. So the Bible explains to us that we're saved from the wrath of God which is not a real, real popular thing to talk about, but the Bible is very explicit about it. We talked about how the Bible tells us that we are saved from slavery and bondage, and we sort of talked about some of those things. Then the second month that we were together, we talked all about what we're saved by. We said the Bible tells us that we're saved by the righteousness of another person, the righteousness of Jesus. Someone else lived a perfect life on our behalf. We talked about how we're saved by the sacrifice of Jesus, how we're saved by the true king. And so we kind of talked about those different concepts over that period of time. Let me just encourage you, by the way, that if you missed any of that, I would highly encourage you to go online. You can download those conversations for free. Um, you can either get the podcast, listen to them on your ride to work or when you work out. But I think that'd be helpful as it sort of lays the foundation of how are you to understand the Bible. 
right? Well, I'm excited because today what we're going to do is we're starting kind of the last leg of this journey together. And for the next few weeks that we're together, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about what we're saved to, what we're saved to. And I'm really excited about this because honestly, I think that this is so important. So important. And, and I think, and I just speaking from my experience, and maybe you guys can relate to this, but in my experience with church, and I know some of you have grown up in the church, some of you have been part of different churches, some of you have no church background at all, which is totally cool. But I know in, with my, my experience, the churches that I've been part of, the churches that I've worked with, that I've uh, experienced and encountered in, uh, in my experience, what I found is that we, we, and this church included, we tend to do a really good job of focusing on those first two parts. We, we, we do a really good job of explaining that, man, we're saved from sin, right? We're saved from, from, from our inability to keep God's law. We know that, right? And we also do a really good job of explaining what we're saved by. I don't think it's a newsflash for anyone in this room that Jesus Christ died for your sins. We talk about that so frequently. We know what we're saved from, for most of us. We know what we're saved by. We talk about those things often. But in my experience, very rarely do we talk about what we're saved to, that there is a new reality there's a new identity. There, there's, there's, there's a new quality of life that God intends for us now. We are saved to something. And this is so important because if you don't understand this, I think, I think it can lead to some really strange things. So, so the, to say that we're saved, right, that we're saved from something, we're saved by something, implies that that's probably good news. But that's really only good news depending on what you're saved to. Right? If you're saved out of a bad situation and into a bad situation, it's not necessarily good news. Right? I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, some of you may have seen in 2014, there was a movie that came out at the end of the year called Unbroken. Really great movie. If you haven't seen it, it's a true story. A true story about a guy um, by the name of Louis Zamberini. Uh, if you guys have not heard his story, I'll give you some of the details, but not all of them in case I don't want to do the whole spoiler thing. But basically the movie talks about Louis Zamberini and his life. He was a World War II bombardier, which meant that he loaded and deployed bombs out of aircrafts in World War II. And his story is basically this, that, that he was in a heated battle over the Pacific Ocean in World War II. His plane got shot down. And all of those who were part of his unit died with the exception of himself and two others. And so they survived the crash. They had two life rafts that they floated around on. And get this, 47 days, they floated around in the Pacific Ocean. And it was a terrible situation. They were beaten down by the sun. There were sharks that were circling the rafts on, on different occasions. Um, they didn't have sufficient water. They didn't have sufficient food. They had to get real creative with some of that stuff. It was terrible. In other words, they were dying right? And they needed to be rescued. And so then finally, 47 days after this whole thing takes place, a boat shows up and you would think that's really good news, right? They're rescued until you realize that on the boat was Japanese soldiers. And they took these men and they put them into a Japanese prison camp. And the situation went from bad to bad, right? And they were mistreated and they were put in, into this captivity here. And so, and so listen, what I'm saying is just saying that you're saved doesn't really make it good news. It all depends on what you're saved to. And I think this is huge because if we don't understand this, then we might not understand the fullness of the good news that God has saved you because he saved us into something. And by the way, let me just say that if you're not a Christ follower, if you're a person that's investigating the whole Jesus thing and you're not real sure what you think about that, that's completely fine. But I think this is a very important conversation for you too. Because to say that you're saved sounds good, but for some of you, you're like, what does that mean though? 
So Jesus has died for my sins, and so now I can become a Christian. And so, what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm that I'm kind of saved to the sub, you know, kind of the, the this uh, this Christian life of going to bed at eight o'clock and watching PG movies? Is that what it means to be a Christian now? Because I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very good. Because that's kind of lame, right? And so, what am I saved from, and what am I saved to? And the Bible explains to us: we are saved to an amazing, amazing inheritance. And for the next several weeks, I want to unpack that. So that we can understand, man, that this is good news. This is very good news. That God has saved us from something and by something, but oh, he has saved us to something. That when Christ has saved us, it's not simply that he has taken something off of us, but it's also that he has put something on us. And I want you to get what he put on us. So today I want to start this conversation. I want to start with a very foundational principle. And what I want to talk about today is this idea that the Bible teaches us that we are saved to family. We are saved to family. And you're like, what do you mean by that? Well, that's a very, very biblical idea. It shows up in many places. But today I just want to look at one place that I think does a great job of explaining what does it mean that we're saved to family. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them with me. And let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. So go ahead and get your Bibles and turn there. If you have a smartphone or your tablet user, um, you can just use your device to get there. There's a great app called YouVersion, Y-O-U-Version. You can download it's free Bible stuff. And if you don't have a Bible, by the way, I also would encourage you, you can grab one of ours. There's black Bibles in the chairs in front of you and turn to page 812. And uh, as we mention every week, if you are a guest with us and you don't own a Bible, like if you just don't have one, um, would you do us a favor? As you can probably tell from this series, we think the Bible's pretty important. Would you just take one of ours? Just make it a gift from us to you. You can put your name in it. And you can have that. So Galatians chapter 4, page 812 in those Bibles. As you guys are flipping there, let me just give you just kind of a brief snapshot of what's going on um, before we start reading. So basically, the book of Galatians, we call it a book, but it's really not a book. It's more like a letter. And it was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul was a leader in the church. Basically, he was a guy who went around and would plant churches. He would tell people about Jesus. And then he'd kind of plant churches. And then he'd move on to a different city. And, and he would do that again and again and again. So, so the Bible tells us that the Apostle Paul writes this letter. He writes it to a group of people called the Galatians. And basically what that was is it was a region, the region of Galatia. There were several churches that were in that region. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them. Now, the reason that he writes this letter, we're told, is because years before this, the Apostle Paul had come in. He had told them about Jesus, about how Jesus had died for them, about how Jesus had freed them, and how now they could have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the Bible said that the Galatians accepted that with gladness, and they started a church. And it was awesome. And things were going really good. But then all of a sudden, the Galatians started to seep back into, slip back into, kind of this works-based, performance-based, guilt-and-shame-based religion in which they started to believe that to, be, that to earn favor with God, that you had to work to earn that. So they started to teach that. They started to teach, man, if you want God to love you, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. And if you don't do those things, then God doesn't love you. And they started to teach that. And so the Apostle Paul hears about this. He writes this letter, and basically he's like, hey, time out. Time out, because you guys have slipped away. You have drifted from the truth about what it means to follow Jesus now. Basically, he says, the good news is not good anymore. You've told people that to be saved, they're now saved to a lifestyle of guilt and shame and performance-based mentality. And he writes to remind them what they were saved to. So let me just show you. Let's take a look. We'll start in verse 4 here in Galatians chapter 4. So it says, but when the set time had fully come, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. That's an amazing little passage, just a few verses there, verses four to seven. Um, and, and that's all I really want to look at today are just those verses. They're so rich. There's such incredible uh, meaning in those verses that I just want to take the whole time we have and break those down. So let's go back real quick. Let's take a look at these. Look at verse four with me again. It says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, now what's he talking about there? Well, let me just kind of summarize what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's really what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. What the Apostle Paul is reminding the Galatians is that at one time they were, and by the way, we too, they were enslaved to their sin, which meant this. God had given a law. He had given the Ten Commandments and other laws in the Old Testament. And the truth is humanity could never keep them. And that's the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is about humanity's inability to maintain the laws that God has provided. And that was true in the Old Testament. That was true in the book of Galatians. And that's true for you and I too. None of us can keep this law. And so the Bible says, because of that, that we are slaves to our sin, our inability to do the things that God requires, and that we are in prison by the law. So that's what the Apostle Paul's saying here. So then he says this. He says, so at the fullness of time, at the right time, God, he says here, He sent his son, meaning that God saw that we needed to be saved. And so he launched a rescue mission. He deployed his son. And the Bible says his son came. Look at this. He says he came born of a woman. Some of you might be like, that's weird. We're all born of a woman. What makes that that special about Jesus? Well, the reason that's important is because the apostle Paul is reminding us that the God of the universe took on flesh that he entered into the human situation, that he clothed himself in humanity so that he might be part of our situation. And so Jesus, at just the right time, God sent his son. He came on this earth. He took on flesh. And then look at this. He was born under the law, under the law. What's that mean? Well, again, like I said, it means that he entered into our prison. You and I are prisoners. We, we, we are unable to live according to the law that God wants for us to live out. And so we are slaves to our inability to keep that law. We're slaves to sin. So the Bible says that Jesus was sent by God, came into our human situation, subjected himself under the law. He entered into our prison, into our captivity. And then why did he do that? Well, look what it says here. He did that to redeem those under the law. That is, he did that to redeem or to buy back. He came into the prison so that he could set the captives free. That's why he came. And the Bible says that Jesus came in and by living a perfect life that none of us could live, God kept, Jesus kept all of the laws. And by dying a sacrificial death that we didn't have to die, the Bible says by doing that, Jesus blew the walls off of our prison and he unshackled us from the slavery of sin and the slavery of law. He came to buy us back. So, so let, me just, let me just summarize what I just said, because I know I just said a mouthful. And here's what I want you to catch. I want you to notice the Apostle Paul is reminding the Galatians, you have been saved from something. You have been saved from the slavery of sin and the slavery of, of your inability to keep the law. You have been saved from something. And then notice what he says. He says, and you've been saved by something. 
You've been saved by Jesus, the one who is sent by God, born, born of a woman, born under the law. He came to redeem you. You've been saved from something. You've been saved by something. But now I want you to watch this because the apostle Paul doesn't stop there. He says, you've been saved from something. You've been by, saved by something. But now watch, this is a really, really important word. Look down at verse five again. It says, Jesus came to redeem those under the law. And here's the word. This is so important. That. That, the word that, I'm just saying, if you're a person that takes notes or if you like to write in your Bible or, or just take, if you have a pen, underline that, highlight that. Even if you don't, get out your mascara, you know, just draw on it. Or, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a guy, poke your finger and, and put blood on it. I don't care. But that is a really important word. Uh, some of your translations say, so that, that's what it says. Literally in the Greek, um, that is just a conjunction. It denotes the purpose or the result of something. It literally means in order that. So you see what Paul's doing here, right? He says, look, you've been saved from something. You've been saved by something. And he says, so that you've been saved to something. God didn't just save you and leave you. He saved you for a purpose. There is a that. And what is the that, Paul? Look what he says. That we might receive adoption to sonship. That's what he says. He says, the reason that God saved you is so that he could adopt you. The reason that he pulled you out of your captivity was so that he could make you his child. Some of you have translations that says it this way. God came that we might become the children of God. And you guys, this is, this is massive. And so much of the New Testament is built on this new identity that has been put on a person who has embraced Jesus Christ. Jesus took things off. He took your sin off of you, but now he places the family robe on you. And he declares that now you are a son or a daughter of God. You guys know what that means? It means that we're saved to something. It means that God didn't just save us and leave us. It means God didn't just, Jesus didn't just come and say, oh, you guys are in a bad situation, so let me help you out. I'll save you. There you go. Now, now you're fine, so I'm going to go my way. I'm going to go continue being the creator of the universe, and you go on and go you know, play Minecraft or whatever it is you're doing, and, and let's just go our separate ways. He didn't just save us and leave us, right? The Bible explains to us that God didn't save us to, to a slave relationship. He didn't save us and then look at us and say, now you see, I saved you. And so now you owe me. And so now you better get it right. And, and I'm just going to hang your failure over your head to remind you that you better, look, don't you, don't you forget, I saved you. And so now you better do the things. I he didn't save us to a slave relationship. Nor did he save us. Listen, God didn't even save us to a second chance. It wasn't like Jesus was like, okay, you got it wrong that time. So I'm going to fix it. And now I got you right. But now you, you better not mess up now. Now you got a second chance. Don't screw it up this time. He, listen, when Jesus saved us, he did not save us to a life of guilt and shame. He did not save us to alienation. And he did not save us to slavery. The Bible says that the reality that God has saved us into, he has saved us from our sin, he has saved us by Christ, and he has saved us into his family. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means something massive. That means that your identity, according to God, is that you are his child. You are his son and you are his daughter according to what Christ has done for you. And what, is that? what does that even mean? Well, Paul elaborates. Look at verse six. And because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son, that is the Holy Spirit, 
into our hearts and the spirit calls out, Abba, Father. And so you're no longer a slave. You're God's child. And since you are his child, God made you also into an heir. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, because you're a child of God, that means that there's some stuff that's true about you. For, first and foremost, one of the things it means is it means you're accepted. It means you're accepted by God, not based on your performance, but because he loves you, strictly because he has adopted you as his son. It means you have value. Value in the eye. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of the king. It means that you have acceptance. It means that you have value. You know what else it means? It means you now have a quality of relationship with God that you could not have any other way. You notice in this passage what it says? It says that we cry out, Abba, Father. Some of you guys know this. The word Abba there is a very informal term that's used to talk about your father. It's like the same as calling your dad, Daddy. Or, or Papa, I don't know who calls her dad Papa, some of you might, but, but it's like calling your dad Daddy. It's informal. And you see, what, you see what it's saying? It's saying, listen, now that Jesus has done this for you, you are, you are now enabled to call the creator of the universe Dad. And that's crazy. And, but this is the quality of relationship that's now accessible to you. You're accepted, you're valued, you have a relationship with God, a real relationship that that is not just a formalized drill sergeant, um, debt, debtor, boss relationship. It's God is my dad. And then not only that, but look at this. It also means we have inheritance. Look at that last part. It says you're also an heir. That means we have inheritance. That means that the things that belong to Jesus Christ, because he's the son of God, now belong to us too. And so the righteousness of Christ is ours. The, uh, the position of Christ in God's eyes is ours. Um, the acceptance, the eternal life that God offers is now ours. All things are now ours because we've been adopted into his family and we are now heirs, right? And so you guys, you see, this is so important because the apostle Paul looks at the Galatians and he says, look, you guys, man, you have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten who you are and we need to go back and I need to remind you that you have been saved to something. You have been saved into a family relationship because the Apostle Paul knows that if you don't get this, if you don't start your Christian life on this basis of the fact that you are now a son or daughter of God, it's going to lead you to some really, really weird places. If you don't, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you don't have a firm grasp on this, it's going to create some very unhealthy interactions with God that God never intended for you to have. This is what will cause us to fall into a performance-driven mentality that I'm only accepted by God based on how good I am. This will produce a guilt and shame-based lifestyle where I constantly feel guilt and shame in my relationship with God. I'm never doing enough. God must be so displeased with me. All of that stems from a lack of understanding of your new identity that's been placed on you. You have been saved to family. Just to clarify what I'm talking about, I wanted to take a few moments and I actually just came up with, just for our sake, four indications that for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know not everyone does, four indications for those of us who follow Christ that we have not embraced this, this reality that God is now our father and that we are his child, that that reality is now yours. So let me just give you four indications. If I say that quickly, it sounds like fornication. So I'm going to say four indicate four symptoms that's probably safer all right so four symptoms that you haven't embraced this let me just go through these real quick so here's the first one first indication when i view myself as living under the frown of heaven when i view myself as living under the frown of heaven it's it's a it's a good it's a symptom it's a good indication 
that I have not embraced the reality that I am now a child of God. Now you're like, what do you mean by the frown of heaven? Well, I actually stole that term. It actually comes from a missionary. I should say an ex-missionary, a guy by the name Joseph Cook. Now a little bit about his story. Joseph Cook was a missionary, went out into the field. After a few years, he, uh, he resigned, came back to the United States. And the reason he resigned, he wrote about. And I want you just to hear what he said. This is heartbreaking. That's what he said. It always seemed to me that God's demands of me were so high and his opinion of me was so low that there was no way for me to live except under his frown. All day long, he nagged me. Why don't you pray more? Why don't you witness more? When will you ever learn self-discipline? How can you allow yourself to indulge in such wicked thoughts? Do this. Don't do that. Yield, confess, work harder. God was always using his love against me. He'd show me his nail-pierced hands, and then he would look at me glaringly and say, well, why aren't you a better Christian? Get busy and live the way that you ought to. When When it came down to it, there was scarcely a word or a feeling or a thought of a decision of mine that God really liked. You see what he's vocalizing? He's saying, listen, he said, I... I I felt like I was living under the frown of heaven. That God, God loved me, but but he didn't love me willingly. It was out of necessity. Um, His his love for me was something that he gave begrudgingly. He was constantly hanging my failures over my head, never satisfied with me. I was never doing enough. He, He always demanded more out of me. Listen, for some of you, you totally identify with this. I'll just be honest with you. When I read this, there's parts of me, man, I identified with this. That's myself, man, you know what? That, that is so true. There are times when I feel like God must just be so unbelievably dissatisfied with me. He, he must be so frustrated with my inability to get it right because, man, I keep screwing up. I need to be doing more. I need to be trying more. Listen, if that's the way you think, that is an indication that you have not embraced your reality, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your reality that you are accepted by God as a child of God because he has adopted you, right? Your, your acceptance is not based on your performance. In fact, you know, the book of Ephesians says this about it. The book of Ephesians says that it was for God's pleasure that he adopted you. That God doesn't just do it because he has to, he does it because he wants to. And, and listen, my, my wife brought up a good point. I was talking to this about her yesterday, that this whole point, and she said to me, she said, you know what? She said, come to think of it, I don't think anyone's ever been adopted on accident. I was like, that's a really good point. You don't just like, whoops, I adopted you. <laughs> now, that happens with, with birth children, doesn't it? You could be like, whoops, we had a baby, but you can't be like, whoops, we adopted one, and God adopted us. That meant it was for his good pleasure. That meant that his love was set on us. And our acceptance is made. And so when we feel like we're living under the frown of heaven, it's a really good indication that you don't understand how accepted and how valued you are. Not, not because of your performance, but because his love is on you. You're adopted by him if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, right? So that's the first one. Here, here's the second indication. Indication number two, that you haven't embraced fully the sonship or the daughtership or that you're a child of God. Here it is. When my confidence in approaching God changes based on my recent moral record. And I tagged the question, do I avoid God until I feel like my performance improves? So, so here's a question on that. Do you find, for those of us who follow Jesus, that when you feel like you're doing good, that you have confidence, man? I have confidence to pray, confidence to read my Bible, 
I go to church, I sing a little louder, I go to life group and I'll speak up and I'll share because I feel like, man, I I feel confident. I've done well this week. But then the moment that you slip up and you feel like you fail, you go back to that habitual sin that you go back to time and time again. Suddenly you feel like, oh, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I gotta, I gotta step away. I gotta give it a week. I gotta, I gotta get back on track and then, and then I'm okay with God again. You feel that way? You ever feel that? I feel that. I'm just telling you, if that's the way you feel, there's a good indication that you have not embraced your identity as a child of God because the fact is that now we have been saved to something. We've been saved to being a part of the family of God. That means there's nothing that can separate us from this love. That means this love is not based on our performance, good or bad, right? We are not accepted because we do good things. Listen, the moment that we begin to to stake our acceptance by God on our performance, at the same time, what we're basically doing is we're pointing at the cross of Jesus Christ and saying that that wasn't enough. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he did that to destroy the walls of hostility and to enter us into this new relationship. It was complete and it was final. All sins, past, present, and future are covered for, right? And so we are now adopted as sons and daughters and we are accepted by him based on what he's done for us. And so I think this is another indication. Maybe we have not embraced that yet. Maybe we haven't fully grasped this yet. Here's a third indication. Indication number three is this. When I am extremely sensitive to criticism. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons you can be sensitive to criticism, but I think this is one. When I'm extremely sensitive to criticism, here's a question. Do I feel like a complete failure when God or others point out an area of weakness in my life? In other words, when someone points out a weakness or a failure or when God exposes that in my life, does it take me a long time to feel normal again? And if that's the case, if we're real super, super hypersensitive to criticism, I think one of the reasons may be because we have not fully embraced that there is a new identity that we are accepted by God as his child. Because part of what this reveals is that for some of us, we are looking to the expectations of others and the approval of others to seek out our approval. Or we're trying to live up to our own standards and to our own expectations. And when we fail that, we feel like we haven't done that. And, and, The Bible says, no, 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 you are accepted totally by God. You are his son, you are his daughter, and there's nothing that's going to change that status. And so what that does is it should create a humility in us in which we can look at our failures and we can look at our weaknesses and say, yeah, that's true about me, but that doesn't define me. Sure, I I have weaknesses and sure, I have failures. That doesn't mean that I am weak and that I fail, that I'm a failure. That's not what that means, right? And so part, part of getting a hold of this identity is basically saying, I find my acceptance in God, not based on the expectations of others and not even based on my own expectations, but strictly on God. And what he declares is true about me. That's the third indication. Here's the fourth. Fourth indication is I want to give up on God and or give in to sin when I feel like I failed God. So here's the, here's the, the question. Does guilt and shame play a large part in my interaction with God? So so here's the question. When you feel like you've screwed up, is your first inclination to say, I want to give up and I want to give in? I just want to forget it. I just want to give up on God. I tried, didn't work. And I just give, I want to give in. Just forget it. I can't seem to keep it. So I'm just going to give in to to all this other stuff. Do you tend to want to avoid God when you feel like, when you feel like you're not quite earning kind of his acceptance in some way? Listen, if that's the case, 
it's a good sign that maybe you haven't fully embraced this identity, that you are a child of God. Because, listen, any relationship that is fueled by guilt and shame is a relationship not that you want to draw near to. It's a relationship that you, you, you feel that you want to avoid and you want to distance yourself from. You guys ever have a relationship with someone where you constantly felt guilt and shame? What do you want to do? You want to get away from them. I, I, can't, I can't keep your standard. I can't. I always feel ashamed. You always make me feel like I'm not doing enough. So I don't even want to be around you. And God says, that's not what I've saved you to. Not saved you to that existence. I saved you to a parental relationship. I'm now your father. Draw near to me. Draw away from me. Draw near to me, right? And, and listen, I don't know if you know this, but it's very possible that for some of us in the room that there might be a habitual, ongoing, besetting sin in your life. You know, the one that you just can't seem to get control over that just keeps, is very possible that the reason that sin might be occurring is not because your performance needs to be tweaked, but because you have not grasped the reality that you are a son or a daughter of God, because you guys know a guilt, a guilt and shame spiral continues to lead to the same conclusion over and over again. It's a downward spiral and you got to break that. And how do you break that? You got to get a hold of this identity. And you guys, this is so important. This is so important. So these four indications I give to you, hopefully just to help you to kind of process through. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, man, have you embraced this reality about who you are? Now, for some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, uh, I went through all of those and I identify with all of those. And so now I feel guilty because I feel guilty. So thanks for that. I appreciate that. You know, and let me just say that if that's the case, if you're like, yeah, I identify with some of those or I identify with all of those, that that is a perfectly normal thing. In fact, I'll just tell you myself, not that I'm anything special over anyone else, but I identify with all of those. To some degree or another, I find myself falling into these things. And I think the reason for that is because, you guys, this is such a profound and amazing truth that God has declared that we are now his sons and daughters, that it's hard for us to believe this. It's just difficult to believe. And you guys, I think God knows this. I think God understands that this is hard to believe. That's why in the Bible, the Bible explains to us over and over again, this is what you are. This is what you are. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You don't have to earn it. You are it. You're a child of God. If you accepted Christ, if you're, if you're a Christ follower, you're, you're a child of God. You are this. And it, over and over again. And do you know the Bible actually tells us this is so hard for us to believe. It's so hard for us to grasp that God himself has to help us believe it. Do you know that? Do you notice that? Look at verse six again. Look what it says. This is great. It says, because you are his sons. I love that, by the way. Because this is true. It's like, you you don't have to earn it. You are it. You are his sons. You are his daughters. Believe that. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit, his Holy Spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you see what the passage says. The passage says, God wants us to understand this so badly. And he knows that it's so hard for us to grasp this, that he's got to help us. So the Bible says that he, not only through Jesus Christ, secured this position for us, but now the Holy Spirit has come and he affirms it. That one of the things the Holy Spirit does, and and this is kind of a strange thing, but the Bible tells us that when a person embraces Christ, begins following Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in that person's life. But the Bible says that one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is always helping us to see the reality of who we are. You're God's son, you're God's daughter, and the Spirit helps us. He testifies to us. He works in our heart that way. We see that here. We see it in a bunch of other paths. Let me just show you one more passage. 
In the book of Romans, it says the same thing. Look at this. This is Romans chapter 8. The spirit you received, the Holy Spirit, does not make you slaves. God doesn't want you to be in a slave relationship with him. One that's defined by guilt and shame when your failure is hung over your head. That's not what the spirit has saved you to. So he doesn't want you to live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought you brought your adoption and sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. There it is again. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Bible says, man, when you embrace Jesus, one of the things that happens is the Holy Spirit comes in your heart, and the Holy Spirit is working continually to remind us, this is who you are. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And he testifies with our heart and teaches us that. Some of you are like, well, how does he do that? Well, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I'm not real sure. Because the Bible doesn't really specify for us what that looks like. It's sort of a mysterious thing. But I think I have an illustration that might help you understand, I think, how the Holy Spirit does this. So I think God is a really good dad. And I think as a good dad, one of the things that he does is he wants us desperately to know the truth about who we are. Because God knows that who we are, when we get a grip on who we are, it's going to change our lives. It's going to change what we do. It's going to change how we act. And a lot of times we get this backwards. A lot of times we think the Christian life is about if I do these things, then I will become acceptable to God. And the Bible says, no, no, no. It's because you're acceptable by God, because of who you are, that now your life can change. We don't get that mixed up, right? And so the Holy Spirit is constantly working with us saying, you need to know this. You are a son of God. You're Remember who you are and testifying with you. And I think any of us who are parents know that this is what we want for our kids. We want them to believe what's true about them. And we don't want to see them live in fear. And we don't want to see them living in a lie of, of something that's not true about them. So um, this summer for me has been a pretty special summer, uh, partially because my, my oldest son this summer learned how to ride a two-wheel bike. And uh, pretty, pretty awesome. He, he's uh, I'm a real proud dad. It took him a little bit, but he got it. And uh, my, my oldest son is one of those who, um, if he's not interested, he's not interested. But when he gets interested and he sets his mind to it, man, he goes after it hard. And so the beginning of the summer, he had it in his mind. He's like, I'm going to learn how to ride a two-wheeler. And so my wife and I, man, we pumped him up. We just encouraged the pants off of him. We're like, dude, we're like, you can do this. You can do this. You know, you're a big boy. Can't believe it. You know, you're five years old now. And we took the wheels off of his bike. And I'm like, man, I can't believe you're such a big boy. You're going to be riding a two-wheel bike now. And I mean, we really inflated this kid. And, uh, and so when it came time to start riding, he was pretty confident. He came in pretty confident. And so we did the, the traditional... You know, I, I was running behind him with the bike, which, by the way, kills your back. And I was running behind him, and I'd push him. And he started real strong. I'm telling you, he got it. So, so the first time I pushed him, he started going. He probably went about 10 feet, and we were on the sidewalk, and then he rode into the grass because he got kind of scared. And so I just, you know, I'm freaking out. I'm like, yeah, good job, bud. You're such a big boy. I can't believe you did it. How did you do that? You know, and just making a big deal about it. And you could just see, you know, he was just chest puffed up, feeling real confident. And so then I, I challenged him. I said, okay, now why don't, you, why don't you try it? This time, don't go in the grass. Just go further, you know? So I push him again. He would go again. I'd be freaking out. You know, yeah, awesome, buddy. He'd go 15 feet, go in the grass. He was doing really good. Sure enough, it's bound to happen, right? I give him one of those pushes and I, I go, just go for it, buddy. I give him a push. He goes, starts going, gets about 20 feet down. I'm cheering like crazy, like a maniac. He starts swerving, right? And he starts freaking out. And then he cuts the wheel real hard. And over the bars, right? down. Got it. He's got his helmet on, good. Hits his elbow, scrapes his elbow up pretty good. 
And so now his elbow scrapes, bleeding a little bit, crying. And I run over to him like, buddy, are you okay? And he is just, I mean, he is terrified, right? Traumatized. And I was like, are you okay? He's like, no, my arm's going to fall off. And, you know, and, and he's like, we need to get, he's like, we need to go home and put a bandaid on it. And, and freaking out. And I said, okay, so let's go home and get a bandaid. It's like, and then he goes, dad, can you carry my bike home? And I, I said to him, I said, buddy, I said, well, we're going to go home. We're going to put a bandaid on your elbow. I said, but I'm not carrying your bike home. So you got to ride it home. So you got to get on and you got to ride it. And he goes, I, he goes, but I can't, I can't. And I said, buddy, I know you can. I've seen you do it before. I've seen you do this. You're a big boy. I've seen you do it. And, and, you know, I'm trying to give him this pep, real sentimental moment. You know, I heard the full house music playing in the background. It's like, you can do it. I know you can. You don't believe it, but I know it. I'm your father. I know this is true. And so he gets back on his bike because I made him. He starts riding again. He gets 10 feet down, loses his confidence. He goes over again, this time his knee. And I mean, he banged it up pretty good. This kid was a wreck. You know, his elbow, his knee, he's bleeding all over the place. And now he's, he just gets up. He's like, dad, I can't do this. I can't. He's freaking out. I can't do this. And I take him by the side. I take him aside and I look at him. I'm like, buddy, I know you can do this. I know. I said, and you don't, don't you give up. Don't you quit. I said, I, you're a big boy. And then I started to try to appeal to him. I was like, you're a big boy. I was like, you know, your little brother who wasn't there at the time. I said, you know, your little brother, he can't do this. And he looked at me like, that's true. He's <laughs> like, your little brother can't. I was like, and you know why? He's like, why? He's like, he's not a big boy yet. I said, you're a big boy. It's like, you're practically a man. <laughs> and, uh, and you could see it. Like we started talking it through. His confidence started, you know, he started getting his confidence. And so then he gets on the bike. And I'm like, you ready to do this? He's like, yeah, knee, knee and elbow bleeding and everything. I'm like, you ready? He's like, yeah. I give him a push. And he goes. And I mean, the kids got it. And he's going down. And I'm freaking out. You know, I'm like, yeah, you're a man. You are man. You know, and I'm just going crazy. And, and he starts going. And he's doing really great. And then suddenly he's probably about 50 feet ahead of me. And he does this weird thing. He stops, puts on the brakes, puts his feet down, starts pumping his fist like this, right? <laughs> and then he goes, signals to me, he goes like this, like, get up here. And so I'm like, yeah. And I like run over. I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? I said, what is it, buddy? And I'm not joking. This is the coolest thing. He looks at me and he goes, dad. And he points to his upper lip and he goes, I think I'm growing a mustache. <laughs> so awesome. And I, I'm like, and I looked at him and I was like, yeah, I think it's coming in, buddy. It's pretty strong there. You guys see what's happening here, though? You see what's happened? He's starting to believe something about him, right? He's starting to believe something's true about him. He's like, I am a man. I am a big boy. I can do this. You see, guys, this is so important because notice when my son's fallen, I'm not, I'm not trying to critique his performance. I'm not like, buddy, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't cut the wheel so hard because technically that's going to create inertia and you're going to fall. No, 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 no. Why? why? Because that wasn't the issue. The issue was he stopped believing something about himself. I knew was true. And so I had to convince him, buddy, this is what's true. And the Bible says, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is testifying with, look, you are a son and you are a daughter of God. And you're like, but I can't do it. And the spirit says, do you know who you are? Do you have any idea who you are? You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. Do you know your value? Do you know your worth? And God says, man, if you get that, it's going to change you. It's going to change your attitude. It's going to change your behavior. It's going to change your life because you weren't saved to slavery. You weren't saved to alienation. You were saved into his family. That's what God wants for you. 
Some of you are like, yeah, but I don't, I don't believe that's true about me. Well, listen to me. When did your feelings ever have more authority than your God? God said this is true about you. And so the spirit has to work with us now to help us internalize this. For those of us who follow Jesus, you are a son and you are a daughter of God. Aaron Ivory um, is a worship pastor, a pretty famous worship pastor. And uh, back in 2010, he and his wife had an opportunity after the earthquake in Haiti. And they had this opportunity to adopt a couple of kids who were in a really bad situation there. And uh, they, they agreed to do it after praying. They felt like God was leading them to this. So they agreed to adopt these children. And after they agreed, it was another two years before they actually had the opportunity to meet their kids. And I thought it was interesting. They, they, they documented this. And when I saw the video, I thought to myself, man, that's just so powerful. Um, not just because it's a good story, but because it's our story. Those of us who follow Jesus, it's our story. So I thought maybe you just take a second, just watch this video as we, as we uh, talk about this idea of being adopted as sons and daughters of God. Welcome back to the most news in the morning. It's now 40 minutes past the hour. Ground zero of the disaster is in the Caribbean, but its impact certainly uh, being uh, felt across the world and here in the U.S. as well as those desperately try to reach their loved ones in Haiti. Aaron and Jamie Ivey adopted four-year-old Amos. They were actually in the process of trying to get him out of the country when the earthquake struck. Now, what they know is that Amos is safe, which is the good news. When they'll be able to actually get him to the States is another story. For two and a half years, we worked hard to get our adopted son out of Haiti. Tonight, we got the call we've been waiting for for so long. Our son is finally coming home. I was calling to see if there are any available flights from Houston Intercontinental uh, tonight to get me in the direction of going to Florida. It was the first time in two and a half years that it actually felt like it could happen. Because we've had several false alarms over the years where it's like, you know, maybe they're going to come home next month or maybe they'll come home six months from now. We just believed that God was saying, this is your, this is your son, pursue him. We were so longing for our family to be together finally. So emotions were just inexplainable. We got to the airport and there's probably 35 or 40 other parents that were in the same boat as us. What's up, Bruce? U.S. Customs had to do very specific background checks. And we just started this long, night of waiting that we didn't see coming. I remember looking at my phone at one point and it was three in the morning. The crazy thing was for so long it had been this giant ocean that was separating us from our kid. And then we're in the airport and it's just a wall, it's a physical wall. We're literally feet away from our kid with nothing but a door between us. It was one of the most frustrating parts of our whole journey. Finally, I just, I went to sleep. I think the sleep for me was almost just this outward expression of this trust that I was having to deal with in my own heart of just, God, I, I trust you with this. I trust you with my son because there's nothing that I could do, nothing. And then woke up and there was some movement going on. Come on back and talk to me real quick. Finally, a US Customs guy came out and called us back to see Amos.
picked him up and just held him so tight. It was an emotional moment to be, not just hugging my son because I'd done that before, but to know that he was finally home. Nobody else was keeping me from him. Nobody else was saying you can't have him yet, but he's here. This is over, this is complete. For like an hour, we just, we just hugged and held and just whispered in his ear. Mom and Papa are here, we love you. We're never leaving you. You're here with us forever. You wanna go home? Go home with Mama and Papa? Forever? Huh? He had come from such a hard place. He's four, and he has been through four really difficult years. I wanted him to experience this sort of newness because I wanted that door to close on being abandoned, being an orphan, and now he's, he's adopted, he's in a family. As a father, I know that I've been adopted into God's family. I was once an orphan with no hope, with no purpose, no aim. But God in his kindness saw me and adopted me into his family. Changed my past, changed my future, changed everything about me. We've been adopted. I want to reciprocate that in the way I live my life. When the earthquake hit, we didn't know if we would ever get our son home. Now Amos has brothers and a sister. He's a part of the Ivy family, and he's finally home. I love that story, not just because it's a good story. Um, I love it because it's our story. And you know, the Bible explains to us that we were in a situation, we were alienated from God, we were stuck in our captivity, but at the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, he crossed every barrier, every place to come to us, to save us. But we're not just saved from something, and we're not just saved by something, but we are saved to his family, to adoption. You know, you guys think about it. This is an amazing reality. God has saved us to adoption as sons and daughters. You know, one of the saddest things about this story is that uh, afterwards, they did a follow-up interview with Aaron and his wife about how the kids were adjusting. And they said, uh, it's, it's going okay, not, not perfect. Um, but they said that basically Amos and his sister uh, were having a very, very difficult time um, embracing and believing this new reality was really theirs. They had a hard time accepting the love that was given to them. And I just, I can't imagine how much that must break the heart of, of those parents to just, they want so desperately for their kids to understand this love is yours and it's for you and it's, it's here and it's, and it's, and it's, it's accessible and you guys, I think for many of us, it's the same problem. Our Heavenly Father wants us so badly to understand this reality about us. We are sons and we are daughters of God. Listen, let me just, uh, before I pray, address one more audience. That, you know, If you're a person that's investigating Jesus, the reality is the Bible says that not all of us are children of God. All of us can call God creator, but not all of us can call God father. It's only when we embrace Jesus Christ that we experience this adoption into son, to son and daughtership of God. And if you're a person that hasn't embraced Christ, I would encourage you to, to give your life to him, to accept the gift that he's given you. Because the Bible tells us 
that when you do that, that you're invited into the family of God. That when God saves you, he doesn't just want to save you into a guilt-driven life. He doesn't want to save you into a constant perpetual feeling that you're not doing enough. It's not what he's saving you into. It's not what Christianity is about. He doesn't want to save you into a second-class lame lifestyle. That's not what Christianity is about. He wants to save you into the fullness of being his son, of being his daughter, to acceptance, to relationship, and to inheritance. And that can be yours. And, and the way you do that, it's not, you know, there's nothing special or magical. Just your heart to God's heart. You just pray to him. And you just say, I accept Christ, I accept your forgiveness. I need to be saved, and I believe that you saved me. And I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. And I want to embrace this reality. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we just want to come to you and... Um, First off, just amazed that we can call you Father. That's ridiculous. And I don't, I don't know if there's any other religious system in existence in which the created can call their creator Daddy. It's wild. And, and, and the truth is, Father, it's so magnificent, it's so wonderful that it's hard for us to grasp. It's really hard to believe. It sounds too good to be true. And I think it's for that reason that your spirit has to help us has helped us believe who we are. God, for some of us right now, we are living in a performance-driven, guilt and shame-based relationship with you, and that is not what you've called us to. That's not what you saved us to. You saved us into no condemnation. You saved us into acceptance. You saved us into a lifestyle of calling you our Father, wanting to draw near to you, wanting to obey you, because you're our dad. And so, Father, I pray that you would that you would, even right now, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and testify that truth. Affirm that. Help us to grasp it and to believe it. I want to pray these things in Jesus' name.